0: for your word I thank you for James chapter 2 and I pray that you will open our eyes Lord um, that we would look into your word today as a mirror and see what's reflected as we compare how we live into the perfect uh, truth of your word that we would reflect your character pray that you'll speak to our hearts in Jesus name amen So, I heard this story many, many years ago, and I always remembered it, but it's an appropriate time to read it. It's from a message Chuck Swindle gave years ago, and we're talking about prejudice being a sin, and a young single attorney once worked for a generous boss who gave all the employees a turkey every year at Thanksgiving. And one year before the birds were handed out, some of the attorney's co-workers thought they'd be funny. Henry placed his real turkey with one made of paper mache. And to make the bogus bird look even more real they, and feel real, they, put it, uh, they wrapped it in paper and weighted it with lead and added a turkey neck and tail. So on the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, uh, he went into the company boardroom and picked up his assigned turkey and thanked his boss and went on his way home. Later on in the bus ride home, the young man was wondering, what am I going to do with this turkey? I don't know how to cook it. Uh, "'I'm just by myself, so before long, though, "'a rather run-down, discouraged-looking man "'got on the bus and sat next to the attorney, "'and as they talked, the young man learned "'that the stranger had spent the entire day job hunting "'with no luck, and he had a large family, "'and he was wondering what he was going to do "'for Thanksgiving. "'Suddenly the attorney was struck with an idea. "'Why not give him the turkey? "'But how? This fellow wasn't a freeloader "'and probably wouldn't accept charity, "'so the attorney asked, "'How much money do you have?' He said, well, I have a couple dollars and some cents. Sold, said the attorney, and he put the turkey in the stranger's lap, moved to tears. The stranger later got off the bus, waved goodbye, thrilled that his family was going to have a Thanksgiving turkey. The next Monday, the attorney's friends were dying to know about the turkey. You can imagine their dismay and the young, man, the young attorney's horror when they both learned what each other had done. So for a week, the attorney and his co-workers rode the bus searching for that stranger they had unintentionally wronged, but they never found him. So you can imagine how bad the attorney must have felt. But what about the stranger? Can you imagine what he thought? How he must have felt when he discovered the turkey was only a glob of paper? For all he knew, the young man had intentionally sold him the fake. Was he right? No. But the circumstantial evidence seemed to indicate that he was, and it would have been hard to convince him otherwise. And like one of Aesop's fables, there's a moral behind the story. It's impossible to judge another person's motives simply on the basis of outward appearance or any external factor. And that kind of picks up what we're talking about in James chapter two today. And I'm grateful for many theologians that I have read and helped me prepare for this message today. So many times people create a God of their own imagination and you notice that it's usually commented, my God would never send anyone to hell, my God would never let a child die of cancer, my God would never let a tsunami wipe out a village and so on and so on. But that's the thing, it's their God, the God of their imagination, the God who should do what they think. But there is a great joy in knowing the true God and that he is not like us. And that's something we can be thankful for. But when we become his child, we are to grow and transform and to become more and more like him in our character and please him by behaving as he tells us to behave. And one of those attributes that God has that is often neglected is the truth that God is completely impartial when dealing with all people. So if we claim to know the Lord as our savior, then we are to act like him Uh, and refusing to let our minds go that way of judging people just because of what they look like. It's easy to deceive our own hearts in this area and think that you don't really ever do this. But what are your thoughts about individuals that you might see on the street in a grocery store at Walmart, the notorious place, um, for visual? Sights. Um, Anyways, so how do you judge someone when you see somebody in poor, shabby clothing or somebody begging at the highway, a person covered in tattoos from head to toe, a person extremely overweight, a person driving a crummy car or living in a house with four-foot grass? What do you think about when you meet someone with a physical or mental disability or someone who isn't the sharpest knife in the drawer after you've had a conversation? Or someone with a different language or a different ethnic background or a different color skin. None of these things influence how God sees a person. There is no place in the life of a believer or in the Church of Jesus Christ for showing partiality or favoritism. The Old Testament makes many reference to the truth that God does not show partiality, nor does He take a bride. Deuteronomy 10:17. "Be very careful what you do, for the Lord our God will have no part in unrighteousness or partiality or taking a bribe," Second Chronicles 19:7. So as believers, we are to treat all people with respect and with concern, regardless of their outward appearance, regardless of their social status or financial situation. Sadly, these kinds of sinful attitudes can creep into our hearts unaware, and then they creep into the church as well. Clearly, this is the issue that James is writing to believers about to warn them not to fall into this type of sin, because clearly it was happening. It's human pride that causes one to think that they're better than someone else. So we deal here with the sin of showing partiality and the law of love is to be impartial. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. So having genuine saving faith in Jesus Christ and then thinking that you can have impartial attitudes toward individuals and judge them is completely incompatible. The word favoritism comes from two Greek words, which means to receive by face, F-A-C-E. It has the idea of judging a person only on their external face value, things like their color, things like their language, their, color, their possessions, and so on. James is speaking here of our tendency to be prejudiced towards others based on superficial outward appearances. Favoritism is not just rude or unkind, It is a serious sin against God. This attitude of personal favoritism literally speaks of lifting up someone's face, judging by appearance, and then giving special treatment or crummy treatment to someone depending on their perspective. It is judging a person without any thought to their true character or what's inside. So, now James is going to illustrate, well, how does this happen? When do we do this? Well, for if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say, oh, you sit here in the good place, and you say to the poor man, oh, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Now, the majority of early converts to believe in Jesus as their Messiah were all Jewish. And for many of them, they ended up being very poor by the reason that they embraced Jesus as their Messiah and were ostracized from their community. Not to mention famine, ongoing problem as well. But clearly, some of the, those gathered in assemblies receiving James' letter had some wealthy members and visitors who would attend that might be wealthy. So imagine a church service where two individuals walk in the door, and the ushers is going to seat them. One has gold rings and beautiful clothes, and others in ragged, dirty clothes. So where are you going to put them? Typically, in these small assembly meetings, there were only a few benches to sit on, and places of honor were considered up at the front. Some apparently had brought their own footstools in, uh, for their bench, so to ask a visitor to sit by my footstool was certainly very disrespectful. Leading the wealthy person to sit in a special seat of honor and the poor person to sit next to a footstool is a clear display of the sin of partiality. Favor is shown to the well-dressed man just because he's well-dressed, while contempt is showing to the poor person just because he's dressed poorly. What has just transpired is making distinctions and discriminating someone based on what they look like. And this was done with evil motives, with hopes that the rich man may do something nice to the one who gave him to the nice, the nice seat, maybe he'll support our ministry, and on it goes. So, this is often done with contempt for an individual because of pride. And the evil done is not the fault of the rich person, having wealth isn't sinful, Both the poor and the rich are equal in the sight of God and therefore partiality must never be shown to either. I was just reading in Proverbs 22 today, the rich and the poor meet together, the Lord is the maker of them all. So why is prejudice wrong? Verse 5, listen my brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? James admonishes here his readers to listen, think about the truth, and how inconsistent it is to behave in this way. One author put it this way, James is not shutting the door on the rich. Far from that, he is saying that the gospel of Christ is specially dear to the poor, and that in there, there is a welcome for them, where he might not be welcomed elsewhere, and that through it, there is a value on that man whom the world might regard as valueless. So what matters to God is not how much money a person has, uh, but the condition of their heart. It is God who has chosen the poor of this world to be heirs to his kingdom. And you know, Paul wrote to the Corinthians, there's not many wise, not many mighty, not many noble among you. God has chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. The majority of God's people will not have vast wealth, but God assures them that they are rich because of their faith. With God, there are no second-class citizens. And in heaven, everyone will be equally rich. Everyone is a joint heir with Christ. James is pointing out how totally unlike God a person is when they dishonor him with their prejudiced attitudes toward the poor or whatever other thing about a person you make a judgment about. Verse six, but you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? I mean, he's asking them, why would you exalt the very people who tend to be the ones who persecute you the most? Many had been taken advantage of by the rich and brought uh, to court and sued. They think so little of your worth as a person, and they are the ones now who even blaspheme the name of of Jesus by which believers have been called. The fair name of Jesus was slandered by enemies of the church, adding to the misery um, the life of those who are his children. And to give preference to the rich and discriminate against the poor was really to align yourself with the world's faulty thinking. Poverty has always continued, and it always will because we live in a world full of sinners who are self-absorbed and think only of themselves. That may be the nature of our unloving world and culture, but it is not to be the case among believers. Scripture has always made it clear that we are to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and you are convicted by the law as a transgressor. Having favoritism and showing partiality is totally contrary to God in the Christian faith. We are commanded to fulfill the royal law of God, which demands to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourself. Now, you may be pleased with yourself thinking that you've never committed a heinous sin of murder or robbing a bank or adultery and you have your own list, but the point James makes here is that you're guilty of all of God's law when you break one because the law is a unit. It's not broken down into individual parts. So showing partiality makes one just as guilty of breaking the law of God as any other sin committed. Having negative attitudes toward people you don't even know because of what they look like, because of their social status or whatever is a wicked and serious sin the law of God, as I said, is a unit and to defy his commands in one area makes one guilty of breaking the whole law of God. And no sin is small in God's eyes. He doesn't rate them one, two, three. Now God's judgment is seen in verse 12. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So, James finishes this section here by appealing to all believers to recognize the danger of divine judgment. Believers are to live and act as those who have been saved by the grace of God. We have been set free from the bondage of our sin because of the good news that repentant sinners can come to Jesus Christ and ask for forgiveness and will be forgiven. The gospel message is indeed the law of liberty because it sets us free from being in bondage to sin, sets us free from judgment and punishment. Jesus took all of that on behalf of everyone who would ever trust him when he hung on the cross. So those who live their life refusing to show mercy to others reveal that they have never responded to the mercy of God in their own lives. God is the one who gives mercy and the proof that we have received God's mercy and the gift of eternal life is that we share all good things given to us by God. A person who shows no mercy has a total lack of concern for others in their need. They don't love people as they love themselves. They fail to reflect the love of God for others. And so they prove that they have never responded themselves to the mercy of God that he offers in salvation. Showing mercy is the fruit of a changed life. It is the work of God in a person's heart. So God gets the credit for that therefore mercy triumphs over judgment a true believer lives their life showing mercy to others and God will show his mercy because showing mercy testifies a person truly knows him now James switch gears and talks about faith that is dead what use is it my brother and if someone says he has faith but he has no works can that faith save him If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food and you say to them, go in peace, be warmed, be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe in God, that God is one, you do well, the demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? So we've come to this section, and it's a good reminder uh, to remember that no one is saved from eternal punishment by doing good works. The Bible makes it clear, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he has saved us. By grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, so that no one will boast. So it's the gift that cannot be earned. James' point in this next section is to make it clear that true faith will always produce genuine good works. There is no cost to the gift of salvation, but it will cost everything to the one who believes. Paul emphasized that the root of our salvation is faith in Christ plus nothing, Every believer is rooted in Jesus Christ, as John 15 describes. And if you have the root, as I said last week, you will have fruit. And that's the point of what James is teaching here dead faith. If someone says he has faith but has no works, can that faith save him? The person who claims they believe in God, they know the Bible is the Word of God, they know Jesus is the Son of God, he died on the cross to pay for sinners. Uh, the debt of their sin, yet they live their lives with no works to back up their profession, can that faith save them? No. True, genuine faith can never be earned by good works, but genuine faith will always produce good works. Can a phony or a fruitless faith save a person? Clearly, the answer is absolutely not. And how is that indicated? Well, he shows a lack of true compassion He illustrates this point by giving an example of someone who claims that they have faith, but they have no compassion when they see somebody in a great need. Meeting someone who is in their poverty with a lack of proper clothing to stay warm in the cold or food to sustain their life, and then sending them on their way, wishing them well, I hope you find a fire let me pray for you. And sending them on the way while doing nothing reveals a heart that isn't in tune with the Lord. It reveals a total indifference, a lack of compassion for those with true needs. In other words, James is saying a person who responds with saying, I'll pray for you, but does nothing to meet the need. That is not a true, genuine faith. The same truth is taught in 1 John 3, 17, which we'll be studying. You know, if you behold someone who has great needs and you have the ability to meet those needs and you don't, how does the love of God dwell in you? Well, it doesn't. Genuine faith produ- will provide real food and real clothes, not just concern. <clears throat> James makes the point that faith with no works is dead. True, genuine faith always has fruit to go along with it. So anyone can claim to be a believer, anyone can know biblical truth, they can have been raised in a Christian home, they may be a Sunday school teacher, they may be involved in a ministry at their church, they may even lead other people to faith in Jesus Christ. And yet, if there is no fruit, if there is no obedience, as if there's no changed life or compassion, it is a dead faith. One theologian put it this way, it is faith alone that justifies, but faith that justifies can never be alone. Genuine faith always has practical evidence of that faith. Faith like the demons, if you claim to believe that God is one, you do well, the demons also believe and shudder. So you can have very sound theology, you can proclaim that you believe in the one true God and the gospel message of salvation and think that that is sufficient because you know that. But James points out that even the demons know that. They know all the truth about God. They know he's the only true God. They know scripture. They know the way of salvation is through Jesus Christ alone. But all of their knowledge can never save them. Having intellectual grasp about God and the word of God can never save a person. The demons actually tremble with fear because they know their eternal destiny is torment in the lake of fire forever and ever. How sad that individual people will suffer this same fate because they have a false faith, and they have no fear about that like the demons. They are deceived into thinking they're right with God because of all that they understand and know about the truth of the gospel. In verse 20, James poses a question. Are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? So having just made it clear that faith without works is nothing more than knowledge about God, like that uh, that the demons have, now James is going to illustrate from the Old Testament that real faith always has had and does have works to validate that person's faith. Genuine, saving faith always leads to action and to obedience, and it continues through a person's life. It's the evidence that a faith is real. Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see, that faith was working with his works. And as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God. It was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. And in the same way, was not Rahab, the harlot, also justified by works when she received messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works, is dead. Couldn't have picked two more opposite types of people to illustrate. You have the father of the entire Jewish nation, Abraham, and then you have Rahab, a pagan prostitute. Abraham was moral. He was admired by the Jewish patriarchs, and Rahab was not considered a very significant person living in Jericho, practicing her trade there along the wall. But they both evidenced salvation, and true faith in Romans 4 Abraham is called the father of all who believe because all who believe come to faith the same way Abraham did they believe God and it's declared that they're righteous because of that it's reckoned to us as righteousness the high highly esteemed man was justified by his works not for salvation but the evidence because justification really has two meanings the first one declares that a person is righteous And that is used in reference to salvation. The moment we come to faith in Jesus, we are declared righteous by the God of the universe, the judge of the universe. And at the moment a person turns from their sin and calls upon Jesus to forgive them and save them from condemnation that their sin brings, that person is justified. We are justified by the grace of God when he shows us his mercy by not giving us what we deserve. But instead, he forgives us and declares us to be in right standing Based on what Jesus did on our behalf. So a person is declared righteous the moment they receive the free gift of salvation. Justified by faith apart from the works of the law, Romans, Galatians, Titus, I mean, the New Testament letters are full of making it clear it is not based on keeping any law. The other means of justification has to do with proof of righteousness. It's used in this way in Romans 3:4 and 1 Timothy 3.16. And there is no contradiction here from the rest of Scripture. James made it clear in chapter one of our study here that salvation is a gift from God, verses 17 and 18. And here in verse 23, James quotes from Genesis 15:6 that declares Abraham was declared righteous on the basis of faith. The specific test that showed how genuine his faith was. It really was many years, decades later, when he was willing to offer up his son Isaac as a sacrifice to God. In other words, Abraham's willingness to offer up Isaac demonstrates his faith by this particular work. Abraham vindicated that he had true, genuine, saving faith through his works of obedience, the supreme example being in the willingness to sacrifice the son of promise he had waited forever to be born and now He was a young man. James goes on to explain that faith is seen in action. Everyone could see the faith of Abraham in action by his obedience. It is true, genuine, saving faith clearly seen by his obedience. If you are justified by God, there will always be proof of that reality characterized by your obedience to him. Clearly not perfection. We all know Abraham blew it, got frayed, lied about his wife, and so on. But the direction of his life was to keep short accounts with God and to walk by faith in obedience. Faith is perfected by producing fruit. I mean, that's what Ephesians 2.10 says. We were ordained to walk in the good works that God has laid out beforehand for us to do. So Abraham believed God. He was declared righteous back in Genesis 15 When he made that covenant, when God made the covenant with him, but it is much later in time that the test to sacrifice Isaac came and his obedience proved that he was already justified by God. God knew Abraham had been justified by faith, but now everyone would know that Abraham, because it was demonstrated before people, his willingness to do the unthinkable out of obedience to his God. Because of Abraham's obedience, he was called the friend of God. And I love that Jesus said in John fifteen fourteen, you are my friends if you do what I command you. So are you his friend? Have you ever been justified? That is declared righteous because you've put your faith in Jesus Christ alone to forgive you. Is it evident to everybody who knows you, the people who live under the same roof with you? Another example then is given here of Rahab, and this well-known innkeeper in Jericho is quite a contrast to Abraham. So when the spies were sent out by Joshua, you know the story, she hid them under stacks of flax on her roof. She had the knowledge about God and all that God had done on behalf of Israel, and she was convinced he was the one true God, just from all the stories that everybody heard and were scared about, uh, those around the land of Canaan. She knew of the miraculous deliverance of the nation of Israel from Egypt, and she plainly states her faith in Joshua 2. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Now therefore, please swear to me by the Lord, since I have dealt kindly with you, that you will deal kindly with my father's household and give me a pledge of truth. So clearly, Rahab had trusted the God of Israel as the one true God, put her faith in him. And the Lord accepted her faith And she was declared righteous at that moment by the Lord. And he also accepted her action to protect the spies. And she was justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. So she had her imputed righteousness from the Lord given to her account. And was declared righteous. She wasn't honored because of her profession. She wasn't honored because she lied to the king who came looking for the men. He accepted her trust in him, and the Lord rescued her and her family. And the most amazing thing is, uh, she became in the line of Jesus the Messiah. She married a nice Jewish boy after she left this area (laughs) and went off with the the Jewish people conquering the land and was the ancestor of the Messiah. How amazing. There was no religious activity that justified Abraham or Rahab. No, both of them were declared righteous by faith. And both were willing to trust him whatever it would cost. Both are declared righteous by God and prove that before people that they were obedient to the God they trusted. My desire for each of us here learning from this passage today is that we would stop in the craziness and busyness of life and examine our own hearts about the area of partiality, prejudice, looking down on others just because of what they look like or what you think they're like. If there is no fruit, if there is very little obedience in your life, then I pray you'll get alone before the Lord today and seek his face. Paul told the Corinthians to examine and test yourself to see if you really are in the faith. Jesus gave that very sober warning in Matthew seven twenty one. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not perform miracles in your name? Did I not go to church every Sunday? Wasn't I not part of a Bible study? Was I not, and you do in this ministry, you can add whatever. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you part from me you who practice lawlessness how horrific to know the truth but never let it change you regardless of all you may know about the bible <clears throat> the proof of genuine saving faith is a changed life that desires to obey the lord that brings forth fruits of obedience so as we've looked into this mirror today what do you see What's the reflection that you're seeing looking back at you? I pray that you will take the time to seek the Lord today. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word and certainly this book hits home in (laughs) every area of our life, Lord, every chapter, and I pray that you will draw those to yourself who don't know you. Lord, help them to understand that it is by faith alone in Christ alone. And Lord, My heart's concern is too for those who think that they know you, who've grown up maybe with the truth or just so familiar and can quote Bible verses and could even lead someone to faith in you and yet don't realize that they don't know you because there is no evidence of a changed life. Lord, I pray that you will open their eyes, that they will take the time to be in your presence today and seek your face and make sure that they have surrendered their hearts and lives to you.